chapter. Amen. First Samuel 17. I'm going to start reading in verse number 2. And uh, it says, And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. Battle lines were drawn that day. And it says this, There came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion. Somebody say a champion. This was the enemy's champ, the enemy's top guy, top dog. And his name was Goliath of Goth, whose height was six cubits and a span. Some believe that's about nine foot six. It's a big boy. Amen. A big champ. And so the scripture tells us in verse 5, he had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had a bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. All of this description is designed for one purpose. It's to let you know this is a man that you cannot handle. He's bad to the bone. And scripture says, he stood and shouted in the valley of Elah to the ranks of Israel. Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Why are you even here? Why have you come to the battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. And if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then... You shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, listen to this. This is the tragedy. They were dismayed and they were greatly afraid. Amen. Would you just bow your heads and let's pray. Lord, I pray, God, that you would help me to preach your word. Help me to preach it with power, Lord. Help me to end when you end and help us to respond to what you want to do in the spirit in this place today, God. I pray that you would anoint our ears to hear, God. Anoint our hearts to receive, God. And let your kingdom come in this house today. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. God bless you. You can be seated. I'm going to save my title for here in a little bit. Got a little bit of a surprise title, but the question is, what is a hero? How many of you ever asked that question? What's a hero? The Carnegie Hero Fund has existed since 1905, was formed in the wake of a tragedy that hit Andrew Carnegie's hometown in Pennsylvania. And the important thing that you need to know is they become very familiar with this question of what is a hero, because over the last century or so, they have honored over 10,000 heroes at the Carnegie Hero Fund. And these are people who laid their lives on the line, pulled people out of fires, plunged into icy waters to pull out the drowning people who have willingly put themselves between other people and harm. People who have willingly stepped into the fray in order to save someone else. One of my favorites when I began to look into this fund was a man named Wesley Altry. They call him the Subway Superman because it was just an average day 
on a subway platform when things took a turn for the worse. Some stranger down the platform went into a seizure as a train was coming down the tracks and fell over onto the tracks. And Wesley Autry, even though he had a four-year-old and a six-year-old daughter with him, took no thought for his own life or for his daughter's. And he dove out onto the tracks to try to pull the man free. Wesley Autry's about five foot nine, and this man was about six foot three. And moving him wasn't that easy. Amen. Some of y'all, this is just a warning. You might fall on subway tracks, you know. So, you know, healthy options are not always bad. <laughs> this man had taken no thought for that, apparently. He was a big fella. And he falls onto the tracks, and try as he may, Autry cannot pull him off. And so, as the train is bearing down, most people would have jumped out of the way and said, I did my best, but not Wesley Altry. He literally dragged him into the middle of the tracks, laid his body over the man of, that, that he did not know, and the train passed over them, and that day, he saved a man's life that he did not know. At his Carnegie Hero ceremony, they gave him $5,000 and a commemorative coin on which the edge of the coin is the inscription, greater man hath no love than this, than he that would lay down his life for a friend. You see, one of the key components of hero uh, heroism is that it always emerges in a moment of dire need, when normal life takes a turn towards disaster, when death knocks at the door and everything might be lost. That is when heroes show up. That's when they materialize out of the fog of anonymity. When stuff goes bad, heroes show up. And so in our text in 1 Samuel, the setting certainly qualifies because if you read back over the previous few chapters, you'll find Saul was anointed king. And the Bible says Saul was defeating enemies at every side until Saul got sideways with God. And just in the space of two chapters, he goes from winning every battle to being afraid of a giant named Goliath. You can almost hear Goliath's taunt. He says, are you not servants of Saul? The one who's won so many battles, the one who you've praised. Are you not servants of Saul and yet you've drawn up for the battle? What he's saying is where is your Saul now? Where is your hero now? You were defeating everybody but then history tells us the Philistines begin to push into Israelite territory. And as they press into their territory they threaten to steal, to kill and to destroy the land that God had given them. And, and it's working. They're making their way in until Israel meets them here at the valley of Elah. Israel needed a hero. They needed somebody to step up. They needed somebody who could stand in the face of the giant. Israel needed somebody who wasn't afraid. Somebody who had what it took to face down the giant. And so the scripture begins to set the scene even before David emerges. We see one chapter earlier, 1 Samuel 16, the prophet Samuel, as he's looking for this hero that Israel needs, he comes to Jesse's house, a man of Israel, and God leads him there. And Samuel is literally moments away from anointing his oldest son Eliab as the next king and the hero 
of Israel when God speaks up and says, Stop, Samuel! Do not anoint him. He's not your hero. Let me just pause here and say, sometimes the hero we think we need is not the hero that we need at all. Sometimes what looks like a hero turns out to be a coward. Sometimes what looks and seems like a hero, and it seems like it can save us, will only leave us wanting in the end. And so God says, stop, Samuel. Do not look on his appearance. I love this part. It's my favorite part. Nor on the height of his stature. He says, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because, listen, I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on outward appearance, but the Lord looks upon the heart. God could see inside this Eliab, and he saw that he did not have what it took to save Israel. And God stopped Samuel from choosing the hero that Israel did not need. I love this passage because as a 10-year-old, I related to it. As a 10-year-old, it hit different because I was always the shortest in my class. Amen. I'm still the shortest in most classes. And I clamped onto those words like a steel vice as about a 9, 10, 11-year-old somewhere in there. God doesn't care how tall you are. Glory. Praise God. I mean, you got to understand, this is after years of going to Six Flags and walking away with a disappointment because the bar was just up there and I was down here. Every other kid my age could ride, but I couldn't ride. Glory to God. He doesn't look on stature. And so, in my 10-year-old mind, this passage meant that God could use me too. Because God doesn't care how tall you are. Woo! I was ready to run an aisle. I could be like David. Those words stuck to me. God doesn't care how tall you are. I therefore concluded that I could do anything that David could do. He and I were basically the same guy. He was the youngest son. I was the youngest son. Listen, I've got some parallels. We love, preachers love types and shadows, right? i got some types here. Listen, David got left out in the field watching sheep. I can't tell you how many times I got left at church because mom and dad couldn't find me. <laughs> me and David, same guy. We're the same guy. Listen, uh, uh, he, he, David... He delivered food. My dad always made me go get him refills. And I've carried on that legacy with my children. David and I were the same guy. In my 10-year-old mind, I thought, he's not that big. He's not the one that they would pick first. But bless God, he can use me too. If he can use David, he can use me. And so, David was taunted by a giant. And listen, I too faced a giant. My giant was about five foot seven which is a giant as fourth graders go. His name was Derek Trevino, and he became my arch nemesis the day that I, the smallest kid in our grade, declared defiantly to him, the biggest kid in our grade, that I indeed could in fact beat him up. I don't know what possessed me to say it or what spirit came over me. I don't know. But he said he could beat me up, and I said, no, you can't. I can beat you up. And he took me seriously. He took me seriously. I, I was just talking trash. I had a big mouth. 
I had no intention of fighting this giant, but I wasn't going to let him stand in my face and tell me that I was not able to beat him up. Never. But Derek took me seriously. And so he made it his mission for the next, until we fought, he made it his mission to goad me into a fight. And, and for days upon end, we would come to school. You ready to fight yet, Rory? You ready to fight yet, Chance? You ready to get, come on, let's see who can really win. Because you said you could beat me up. I'm telling you something, the professional excuse maker in me came alive. I can't today, I've got a math test, you know, if I get black eye, can't see the test. <laughs> Listen, this boy was serious about it. I don't know what he had to prove trying to stand up against the smallest kid in his grade, but he took me serious, and he dogged me days after days after days, and finally, I told him one day, I'll fight you this evening. You come on, I'll fight you. And David, that evening, I was eating dinner. The fork was almost in my mouth when the doorbell rang. And mom and dad said, who's that? I said, I don't know. I ran up there to check the front door. And there stood Derek, all five foot seven, on the, with his, his shadow of a beard already. Shaven. Had a Popeye tattoo on his arm. <laughs> he said, you ready to fight? I had a fork. I said, I'm eating dinner, man. I can't fight today. He caught me in the middle of dinner. He said, you're just chickening out. I said, no, man, look, I, I, can't, I, I can't fight today. And, and so Derek was all over me till one day I got a little bit of courage. Because after all, I'm just like David. I, I decided I'm David too. I can go do this. And so I walked around the corner and up the hill to Derek's house. And he was playing in his front yard at the top of the hill. And he saw me and I saw him. And he started walking down the hill. And, and he got, we got within about 10 feet of each other. And this is my David moment because he ran at me, and when he ran at me, I just reacted. He tried to grab me, and when he tried to grab me, I sidestepped and pushed him. And miracles of God happened that day. <laughs> because Derek fell down, and when he came up, he came up crying, screaming. right I said what's wrong with you he said I broke my arm his arm was crooked and Derek ran back to his house crying and squalling I turned around popped my collar and walked back home I'm David I faced a giant I defeated my giant listen the next day I got to school and Derek showed up with a cast and everybody said, what happened to Derek's arm? I said, I broke his arm. We fought yesterday and I broke his arm. I broke his arm. Don't mess with me. <laughs> I was David. I had defeated my Goliath. But you know the truth is that I wasn't David at all. Because if it had not been for a fluke, I'd probably have been hurting that day. I probably would have been broken that day. I wasn't David, and he wasn't Goliath either. He was just an overgrown fourth grader, and I was a kid with too big of a mouth. You know, so often when we hear the story of David and Goliath, we cast ourselves in the role of the young giant slayer slayer from the tribe of Judah. We see ourselves as the hero of the story. 
the man who shows up and stands up to the giant that no one else will fight. In fact, if we are not careful, we can make that same mistake in every single Bible story where we begin to read ourselves into the text. You are the hero. You are the one who can overcome. And if we're not careful, the Bible becomes almost like a manual for how great and how wonderful and how awesome that you can be. But ladies and gentlemen, we we read ourselves in. We see ourselves in innocent Abel. But not as the jealous, murdering brother Cain. We see ourselves as God-fearing Abraham. And not as the culture-compromising Lot. We see ourselves as the dreamer Joseph. And not as the duplicitous brothers who stabbed him in the back. We see ourselves as Moses, the miracle man. And not as the whining Israelites who are filled with doubt and fear. We see ourselves as a three-Hebrew boy who refused to bow. We see ourselves as the disciples who did choose to follow, who didn't walk away. We see ourselves as a woman who caught the hem of his garment rather than the crowd who missed the miracle. We see ourselves as Peter at Pentecost standing with the eleven, but not as the crowd who is mocking. Don't misunderstand me. The scriptures are written for our admonition. And the Bible does tell us that these things happen to them as examples for us. But listen, if we're not careful, we will miss the most important half of the story. And that is that you are not David and that I am not David either. The Bible is not about you. And it's not about how you can win. It's not about how wonderful you can be. God did not breathe inspired words into over 40 authors in 66 books just to tell you how cool and how great you can be. It's not about you. The Bible is ultimately a book all about one man. It's all about Jesus. Because hear me in the Holy Ghost today. Every page of this book is pointing to Jesus. And and now's when I'll introduce my title to you because I didn't come to preach to you about how you can be a hero. But I've come to tell you that Jesus is the real hero. Jesus is the hero of the story. Every page and every line of the book are building a case, building a profile book by book. The scripture unfolds and unveils the true conquering king in types and in shadows. We can see him in the book of Genesis as Joseph. He is the one who suffers and sacrifices so that others may live. We see his shadow in Abraham's story. He is the ram caught in the thicket who dies in the place of the one who was laying on the altar. We see him all through the Bible. We see his shadow in the life of Moses as the one who leads people out of bondage through the blood of the Lamb. He is there. Every line, every page is building a profile so that we may see who he truly is. We see him in Joshua as the commander of the armies of the Lord. He's there in every book, each page pointing to one man, one Messiah. He is in Ruth as the kinsman redeemer. And Nehemiah as the rebuilder of broken people. He is Hosea, the loving husband who forgives the unfaithful wife. We see a silhouette in Isaiah as the one who shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Almighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace, whose government and peace there shall be no 
end. He's there. Screaming from the pages of scripture. He's there. And too many types and shadows to mention the entire book. It's all about him. It's about him. He is the hero. He is the conqueror. He is the champion. Because when you start reading him into the story, the whole picture of the text will change before your eyes. And perhaps one of the reasons that our culture tunes out Christianity is that too often in the church we have been pulled into pop psychology sermons that prop up our egos and tell us how to be heroes and how to find one. Too many times it's all about us. But when the story becomes about him, we begin to see us for who we really are. And we begin to see him for who he really is. It almost seems counterintuitive, but the more we see how we are not the hero of our story, the more that the true hero begins to emerge. You see, you're not always the hero. Sometimes you are the rebel. Sometimes you are the coward. Sometimes you are the Pharisee. Sometimes you are the bad guy, the victim, the loser, the sinner, and the failure. Sometimes you're not the hero at all. Sometimes you are the villain. Sometimes you are the creator of the problem that causes you to cry out to God. Sometimes you're the one who sows tears into your own field. And if we get really real about who we are, then we can really understand who he is. You see, anything that makes us the champion and not God is a misreading of Scripture. That's the original lie from the serpent. When he tells Adam and Eve, you shall be as gods. You can be like God too. And Adam and Eve ate the fruit. They took the bait, hook, line, and sinker. They thought we can be everything that he is. But honey, there's stuff that he has that you don't have. There's ability that he has that you can never attain to. It's the original lie. You are not the hero. You are not David. You're not David at all. And the reason that your can-do attitude and your self-help books and your man-made principles and your worked-up courage do not work is because they are not supposed to. Because you are not David. You are not the one to face the giant. You are not the one to sling the stone. That's not who you are. That's not who I am. That's, that's not our story at all. We are not David. Listen, we've tried to kill our giant, but our giant keeps getting back up again. We've slung our stones. You know why David carried five of them? In case the first one missed, and the second one missed, and the third one missed, and the fourth one missed. Why did, why did he kill, uh, why, why did he bring all those stones? Because he might miss. Well, listen, David didn't miss, but you do. And I do too. Because we're not David. He always gets back up. We knock him down. But he, he gets up and he throws the spear. He wields the sword. He pushes you back. He threatens your life. He strikes fear into your heart because your giant is too big for you. And you're not David. 
No, the message of Scripture is not that you are David, ready to become your nation's hero. But the message of Scripture was screaming from the hillside of the valley of Elah is that not that you are a David, not that you can be a David, not that if you believe hard enough and act accordingly that you will kill your giant. But here is the message from the valley of Elah that when you are afraid and when you are huddled behind the rocks and when you don't know what to do, you are not David, but baby, you have a David and his name is Jesus you're not the hero of the story but there is a hero you have a David Israel was at a pivotal moment in its history the Philistines have pushed into the territory and threatened to take the land that God promised and procured for Israel it wasn't merely a fight for land but it was a fight concerning destiny because we hear the words of Goliath ring out that if I win, you shall be my servants. If I win, you will serve me. And all the house of Israel will serve us. If we win, the enemy has overcome and God's people are defeated. It was a fight for destiny. Because the loser would be enslaved by the other nation. Everything is on the line. And out comes Goliath. All nine, six, nine foot six of them, lumbering out into the valley, clad in an impressive array of armor. He wore a coat of mail that mimicked the pattern of snake scales. It's almost as if he's a picture of that great serpent and dragon, the beast that taunts the people of God. He comes out wearing this coat of mail. He carries a spear the size of a weaver's beam. A sword too big for the average man to carry into battle. He's impressive and intimidating all at the same time. He is the champion of the Philistines sent out to do single battle. Champion warfare. He represents everything that his kingdom represents. And to defeat him is to defeat his kingdom. He is the strongest of their warrior. You see, single combat was meant to display before all watching who was the superior force, who was the greatest champion. And Goliath taunts Israel, the scripture says, for 40 days he walks out into the valley. And he taunts Israel day after day after day for 40 days. You know, here's the interesting thing, is I discovered this a while back in studying for another sermon, is that the number 40 is always significant, because after the number 40 is up, what always follows after is extremely significant scripturally. Moses, in the life of Moses, it's divided up into three 40-year periods. His first 40 years is God preserving him in Egypt. The next 40 years is God preparing him in the wilderness. And when that 40 years is over at the burning bush, he transitioned into 40 years of victory and spirit-led uh, leadership in Israel. 40 is always significant. Israel, they were in the wilderness for 40 years. And when the 40 years was up, what happened? They marched victoriously into the land of promise. And so it's not just coincidence that Goliath came out for 40 days. Because what the scripture is screaming to us is that the giant had his time. But things are about to change. And the scene is set because for 40 days... He reigns and he rules. 
He intimidates God's people. He pushes them back and reduces them to people who are hiding in the rocks and scared for their lives. For 40 days, he has his time. For 40 days, he has his, his, uh, his rule and his reign. But at the end of 40 days, a young boy named David shows up to the battle lines. And he came to bring cheese and bread to his brothers. But when he hears the Goliath, Goliath the giant taunting in the valley, David can not handle it and he begins to ask who is this uncircumcised Philistine that would stand against the people of God it's a pivotal moment in their history and scripture is signifying that the 40 days of Goliath are over David was the hero that Israel did not know it needed he was an unexpected hero because he arrived to the battle as a servant, an errand boy bringing food to his older brothers. David had an unexpected resume and an unexpected pedigree. He wasn't the type hero that Israel thought their help would come from. In fact, Scripture paints a picture rather clearly that he did not fit the armor of their expectations. His older brother was furious with him, accused him of being mischievous. Saul tries to fit him with the king's armor. And listen, this is what's interesting. If you read the description of Saul's armor, it's very similar to that which Goliath wore. Sometimes our heroes, our could have been, should have been, would have been heroes, they try to solve things the same way the enemy's kingdom does. That isn't the hero that Israel needed at all. Israel didn't need a bronze coat of mail. Israel didn't need a shiny new sword. Israel didn't need that. Israel needed David. Israel needed this shepherd boy who had spent his time in the wilderness in obscurity, forging a relationship with God, forging some stuff with God that cannot be found in anybody else in Israel. And he was the unexpected hero that Israel didn't know that it needed. He didn't fit the armor of expectations, but he was the hero they needed. He didn't come with sword and with shield, but he came in the spirit of the Lord. His resume for victory came from his private life. The scripture says he had faced a lion and a bear, and he had overcome by the power of God. David steps out of the shadows of history into the valley of Elah, where he goes to stand up to the giant when no one else could and no one else would. Why? Because David recognized the cause. Listen to the words of David when he, he begins to question, why is no one fighting? He said, is there not a cause? Isn't there a cause in Israel that would cause somebody to rise up and fight? You know what the cause for David was? It was the destiny and the future of God's own children. And David saw them hiding and huddled. They would march out to the battle. you got to get the description, y'all. They would march out to the battle and all their array of armor, shields and swords, and stand every day like they could handle it. Day after day, they would muster the battle line until, I, until Goliath would walk out. And then the scripture says they would run. Is he still there? <laughs> and they would flee. Day after day, they would flee from the battle lines. And David said, is there, is there not a cause? Isn't there someone who will stand up? He had a cause. He refused to let the enemy triumph 
over God's own people. And his passion propels him towards the fight. He doesn't need Saul's armor. The Bible says he makes his way to the brook. And he collects five smooth stones and he sticks them in his pouch. And David didn't just saunter out to the battle line. But he runs to the battle line. And he swings his sling. And with the movement of one single stone. The Bible says he propels the stone across the valley. And it hits Goliath square in the forest head and Goliath falls down and the giant is defeated giant goes down in a heap and David defeated the insurmountable foe Goliath had mocked him and lacked him off right up until the moment that the stone moved Right up until the moment that the stone began to move, the Goliath was laughing. Do you come to me like a dog? Do you come to me with sticks and stones? I'm going to tear you to pieces out here. And Goliath had a lot to say until the stone moved. And when the stone moved, Goliath didn't have anything to say anymore. Because his head was severed from his body as David, the conqueror, overcame Goliath. David defeats the foe. And listen to what happens when, when, when he does. When he defeats Goliath, all Israel stands for a moment silent as they watch their hero run to the battle line. A silence comes over them, I believe, as they stand in awe for a moment. And David grabs the head of the giant, grotesque as that may seem, and raises it up for all of Israel to see. And when David stands in victory in the middle of the battle, something happens in the battle lines of Israel. From behind the rocks, something begins to stir and shake, almost like the beginning tremors of an earthquake. All of a sudden, a shout begins to go up from Israel because these who were cowards, these who were defeated, these who were afraid of the foe, have seen that he can be defeated, that indeed he has been defeated. And a shout begins to go up among the battle lines of Israel as every one of them begin to raise their weapon and raise their voice. And from cowards, they became courageous. And they run out from behind the rocks. And the Bible says that Israel pursued the Philistines because simultaneously on the other side of the battle, when they see that David has overcome and that David is victorious. The Philistines are transformed from cocky to cowards. And they begin to back away slowly, kind of like I tried to do from Derek for days. All of a sudden, the, flip, the script is flipped. And the Bible says as they turn to flee and run for their lives because their champion is dead. Their champion is defeated. Jesus said it this way, Behold, I beheld Satan fall like lightning. He is defeated already. And the Philistines begin to run. And Israel begins to pursue. And all of a sudden, Israel is winning a victory that it could not win. They are defeating foes that they could not face. They are fighting battles that they were not even willing to approach. Why? They are now 
overcomers because their David has won. And this is the overwhelming cry of Scripture. Not that you are a David. Not that you have to be a David. No, the message of Scripture is that you have a David. That when you could not defeat your sin, when you could not defeat your shame, when you couldn't overcome your addiction, when you couldn't overcome your battle, you've got a David. Somebody shout yes. We've got a David. He's the one who conquered it all. He's the hero of the story. He is the champion. Jesus is the real hero. Jesus is my champion. I don't have to fight. I don't have to find it in myself. I don't have to figure it out. I don't have to know how to sling the stone. I haven't spent time doing the things that he did. And I could never attain or measure up. But understand this. Our battle was not in the valley of Elah. But it was on the hill called Golgotha. And it took place for six hours on one Friday. In between two other crosses. Because Jesus was innocent. He was the only one qualified to face the giant of judgment. And Jesus was tempted in every point. Like as we are yet without sin. He was worthy for the battle. Uniquely qualified to stand in our place to fight the fight that should have been our fight. Romans 5 tells us throughout history of humanity that sin and death had reigned over all men because of our original champion Adam who fell. By one man's sin all men became sinners. And Adam our first champion had failed us. And the cascading result throughout time was the sinfulness of all humankind. And at his fall we were destined to fail. Destined to fall short. Destined to never measure up. Our destiny was decided by our Adam, our original champion who failed us. We needed a new champion. And while humanity huddled in the rocks of defeat, out from history and obscurity steps Jesus. The Bible says that he despised the shame and rejection. But he also saw the cause. Because who for the joy that was set before him. Scripture screams to us that he humbled himself. And became obedient even to the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him. And given him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is our champion. He is Lord of everything. He is Lord of all. There is nothing that he cannot fight. There is no battle that he cannot win. There is no battle that he can't overcome. There is no conquering foe that can stand in his face. Listen, I don't know what you're facing today. I don't know what your family's going through today. But I've come to preach to you, you. Have a David. You've got a David. I want our praise team to get ready to come as I wind to a close. Somebody say, I've got a David. I've got a David. Jesus was our David. He was our champion. He defeated our giant. And listen to me. Our destiny was decided in that fight. Some of you have fallen into believing that it's based on your performance that you will get through what you're going through. And you tell yourself, you better pull it together. Am I preaching to anybody right now? You better pull it together. 
there's a giant calling your name, you better pull it together. You see your kids struggling, floundering, fighting to find their own faith, and you say, I gotta do better. I gotta, gotta figure out a way. I gotta make it happen. But I wanna tell you, it's not based on your performance that you will come through victorious. It's not based on how good you can be, how well you can do, how much you can put it all together, figure it out, strategize, come up with a spiritual plan. Some of y'all are planners. Y'all write down a 72-step plan in your booklet of how you're going to do better as a Christian and how you're going to overcome this fight and how you're going to do that. But that's not the way the battle was designed. You have a David. You don't have to be a David. You have a David. You are not a David. You will never measure up. You'll never figure it out. And that's why at the darkest moment of your life, David shows up. Your Jesus will arrive. The Bible says he came unto his own, and his own received him not. But to as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. What does that mean? It means that you don't have to know how. You don't have to figure it out. You don't have to come up with your own plan. What you have to do is you have to find. David's victory transformed the armies of Israel. And listen, in the space of a stone's throw, they went from defeated to overcomers. And I want to tell you, the day that you became an overcomer is the day that the stone rolled away. That's the day you became an overcomer. It's not tomorrow. It's not next week. It's not next month. It's not when you figure it out. It's not, it's not when you perform well enough, when you do good enough, when you hit all the notes right, when you worship hard enough. It's not all those things. It was already won. The battle was already decided. Stand with me. Just listen. The revelation is transforming. If Jesus is my David, then his victory is my victory. Because when the Philistines saw the stone strike and the giant fall, Scripture says that they flee. Their champion is defeated, and they begin to run away. And when Israel realizes what has happened, the spirit of victory surges through the camp. And in one motion, they run forward, following after their David. With a shout, they pursue their enemy until they push them totally out of their territory. David's victory transformed the armies of Israel. And they went from hiding in the hills to pursuing and overcoming past every obstacle. His victory became their victory. And hear me in the close of this service today. His victory is what brings you victory. Jesus' final words on the cross were these. They were a declaration to all who believe. Those three words hold the promise of new life and new hope. He said this, Sister Renee, it is finished it is finished what is finished the taunting cry of guilt and shame finished defeated the addiction that you couldn't overcome it is finished the problem you didn't know how to solve it Voices that you cannot silence. It is finished. The taunting cry of the enemy who seems so strong and undefeated. It is finished.
Why? Because Jesus is your David. Hear me today. Your enemy is defeated. Your victory is already won. The giant has already fallen. Listen, if you're here and you're fighting sickness in your body, your healing has already been paid for. For by his stripes we are healed. Sickness can't stay any longer. By his stripes I am healed. And so how, how do you respond to a David? How do you react to a David? I'll tell you how you do it. As you come out from behind the rocks in full faith and sureness that if he can win, I can win. The Bible says it this way. We are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus our Lord. Shall persecution, shall famine, shall distress, shall any of these things separate us from the love of God? Paul said no. We are more than overcomers. Why? Because we have a David. Jesus is the real hero. So here's what I want to do in the end of this service. They're going to sing this song. And I just want somebody who's been struggling with it all. Somebody who's been fighting and wondering, how will I ever overcome? How will I ever come through? How will I ever get past this valley in my life? How will I ever defeat this foe that seems to call to me day after day? How will I ever get through it? Here's what I want you to do. Is I want you to walk to the front. And I want you to call upon the only name that can save you. The Bible says that name is Jesus. Would you step out? If you've got something in your life that you need to see fall down, if you've got an enemy that you need to have faith to overcome, would you just step out as they lead us in worship? And would you say, Jesus, I'm not, I'm laying down my crown. I'm laying down my armor. And Lord, I'm just going to let you fight my battles. I'm going to let you lead me to victory. See.